Welcome to The Confessional. I'm Mike Moran. Tell us your deepest, your creepiest, your funniest. Confess to us. No one's listening. All right, everybody, welcome to the Confessional Podcast. This is Mike Moran coming to you from uh, not from the studio this week, of course, as it is quarantine, doing a special quarantine cast from uh, Sue Warner's mini studio here. And we have a very, very special guest today. This is weird doing it without a co-host. Normally, I'm bouncing on and off the co-host. But uh, we have the amazing professor from Rockford University. He runs the Center for Ethics and Entrepreneurship. Uh, you know this guy from the books Nietzsche and the Nazis, Entrepreneurial Living, Liberalism Pro and Con. Please welcome Dr. Stephen Hicks. Dr. Hicks, how are you? I am well. Thanks a lot for the invitation. Of course. Thank you. How you been dealing with the quarantine? Well, except for uh, moving my classes online, uh, things are pretty much the same. The only other challenge I had was I was doing a lecture tour last month in Australia, mm. and we ended up being in Australia for about an extra 12 days due to oh, no. impossible travel connections. Right. Getting out, but there are worse places in the world by far to be stuck. Sure, sure. Just knock back a couple Fosters. <laughs> You'll be Didn't fine. see a foster or a kangaroo the whole trip, but we really had a lot of fun. <laughs> otherwise, we had it. We had a guest once tell us about how uh, kangaroo fights were a uh, were a pretty common problem for for adolescent mm. boys. It was kind mm. of a kind of a rite of passage to get into it with a kangaroo in Australia. Huh. Uh, so, Stephen, uh, your latest book is, I believe, Liberalism Pro and Con. Is that correct? Yes, yeah, just out last month. Yeah, the theme there is, uh, uh, the book is a primer, which is to say it's directed toward people who are serious, but uh, uh, looking for their first introduction to what they need to know about philosophy, economics, and politics before making up their minds about the big issues. So I take up and present 15 of the most powerful arguments that have been advanced for liberalism mm -hmm. and present them as strongly as, uh, as I can. And then I do the same for the other side of the debate, taking the 15 most powerful arguments against liberalism and presenting them with uh, support from the big name thinkers, you know, Plato, Nietzsche, Marx, and others who've been critical of liberalism. Okay. Okay. Is there, uh, is there an audio version of that as well, or is that... Not yet. Yeah, the yeah. audio version and uh, Kindle versions are in process. Yeah, you have such a soothing voice. I just, I love listening to you, to you talk about these things. Uh, all right. You have well, a very soothing voice and you have like a very kind of rational uh, kindness to, to your, you know, you, you never get into, you don't get mean and nasty and, uh, and gritty. Well, rational kindness. I like the sound of that. <laughs> all right. So is there anything else you'd like to uh, promote up front before we get into it? Well, no, uh, the liberal book is on, liberalism book is on my mind, but uh, I'm always happy to talk about uh, Nietzsche and, uh, and Nazis, entrepreneurism, 
And of course, postmodernism is uh, often on people's minds these days, sure. given the uh, craziness in higher education. Absolutely. Uh, but I now, will uh, take, uh, take, take my uh, cue from you. Yeah, yeah. Um, let's see here. Well, of course, you're, you're very well known for uh, Nietzsche and the Nazis. Is, is that your biggest selling book, would you say? No, the biggest selling one is explaining postmodernism about okay. uh, skepticism and socialism and uh, okay. people like Lyotard and Foucault and others. But Nietzsche and the Nazis is uh, another strongly argued book as well, because, of course, mm -hmm. there's a whole Nietzsche industry and a Nazis industry. Sure, sure. Um, and there was a there was a video version of that too. I remember getting that on Netflix years ago. Kind of uh, yes, uh, yes. What, what made you decide to do as that a, as a documentary? Oh, okay. Uh, yeah, that we did. It's like two hours and forty five minutes or some something like uh -huh. that. Hundreds of pictures uh, and so on. And it did uh, gratifyingly get picked up by Netflix. And then uh, basically over the course of the next year, took the script and turned it into a, a more semi-scholarly volume. Okay. Trying to bridge that gap between kind of the thinking public who are looking for a deeper dive, uh, as well as the uh, the scholarly audience. Right, right, okay. Yeah, I remember finding that on Netflix and I was like, huh, wow, I didn't know they had this type of thing on Netflix. This is pretty cool. All right, so our first confession here is from uh, Cynthia X. Wang from Baltimore, Maryland. She says of Nietzsche, love him, amazing, groundbreaking philosopher. He's very misunderstood. People say he was anti-Semitic, but those rumors were started by a guy who hates him and was misinformed. Nietzsche's principles apply to our lives and today more than ever. If you can't tell, I'm a huge fan. Okay, well, interesting. Yeah, Nietzsche, uh, I would say uh, he had some low-grade anti-Semitism you know, by the standards of 19th century Germany. Sure. He was not really that anti-Semitic. Right, fact, right. Much of what he says is very positive about the Jews, sure, their, sure. their, their intelligence and uh, social cohesiveness. Mm. Uh, in fact, he uh, typically has a lot harsher things to say about his fellow Germans mm -hmm. and uh, people who are anti-Semitic. He uh, thinks of them as yeah, pretty much the scum of society. So yeah, the, wow. uh, he does, of course, have some philosophical objections to Judaism and its ethical system, and uh, he sees Christianity in large part as a purified version of basic Jewish moral insights. So he's also harshly critical of Christianity. Mm -hmm. It's a, it's not a, it's not like a, an unthinking prejudice. It's a, it's an intellectual disagreement. Right. Right. Um, do you agree with Cynthia where she says that uh, Nietzsche's principles apply to our lives in today's world more than ever? Well, Nietzsche is a philosopher who pronounced on hundreds and hundreds of things. So I think we would need a more nuanced view. My view, you know, this to speak personally, is that Nietzsche is brilliant as a critic of a lot of past philosophy, and he puts his finger very well on fundamental things that we all need to think about. Mm. Uh, and uh, he's also brilliant as a psychologist, particularly focusing on lots of the, uh, the hypocrisies and the envies and resentments that, uh, that are, are, are masqueraded by more formal philosophy. So he's very good at diagnosing underlying psychological problems that, uh, that drive 
a lot of what seems to be right. more rational uh, philosophy and politicking and so forth. But when we flip, flip over to Nietzsche's positive views, uh, I have almost total disagreement with him. So my agreements tend to be that we have common enemies, but uh, I don't see Nietzsche as a positive ally. Hmm. How so? Well, he is, a, uh, on my reading, a biological determinist. He thinks uh, free will is an illusion. Mm-hmm. Uh, so on the, that basis, he tends to then see human beings as more or less fatalistically driven by biological impulses that are uh, beyond their control. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's why he, in his analysis of humans, tends to apply animalistic labels. You're either a predator type or you're more of a prey sheep type. Right, right. Uh, and you can't really help being who you are. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, by contrast, do think uh, human beings have volition. And as a result, we have a significant amount of control over our thoughts and our actions. And we should see ourselves as moral agents and not enthralled to uh, to uh, to uh, biological destiny. Mm-hmm. He also is a, an irrationalist. Fundamentally, he tends to think that our rational capacity is a, a Johnny-come-lately faculty, that it's largely dominated by underlying instinctual powers or, or, or wills, uh, and that what we call reason really is just a rationalization for all of that. Mm-hmm. I, by contrast, think that human beings, if they commit to it and train it properly, we can be uh, highly rational, and uh, that uh, much of the progress that we have made in civilization is due to those individuals who have, in fact, decided to, to use their minds, to use their reason, and uh, discover new knowledge and uh, new institutions that have lifted us out of the caves. Hmm. Uh, now, it seems like Cynthia is is someone who's been personally inspired by Nietzsche. Was that the case with you? Did you discover his writings when you were young, or did they have a personal impact? Well, yeah, he definitely did. There is, uh, if you don't dive too deeply into his philosophy, he is an extraordinarily attractive writer. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, German language, uh, you know, it's, it's generated a lot of poetry that's attractive to native speakers of German. Sure. But uh, German intellectual life uh, has a well-deserved reputation for being pedantic and obscure. But Nietzsche is one of the exceptions. He's a brilliant stylist, a brilliant absolutely. rhetorician. Mm-hmm. And the fact that he is willing to, uh, you know, kind of not pull punches and name names and attack people in rich language, right. really need to be learned. He's, he's very exciting to a young mind. And there is a kind sure. of romanticism about him that life is this great quest. Mm-hmm. And you shouldn't just uh, stay in your, your little neighborhood and your little home. You should get out there, summon the, you know, the most powerful drives and passions you can find in yourself. Go out and start a fight numb. club. Yeah, risk, live dangerously, as he says. So right. yeah, all of that is extraordinary. He, he offers life as a great intellectual and romantic uh, adventure. So uh-huh. yes, I discovered him when I was young, first year of university. I had a, a very good professor of ethics who had Nietzsche on the, on the, uh, on the syllabus. And of course, he uh, taught him in, in somewhat scholarly, abstracted, dry fashion. But mm-hmm. when you read Nietzsche for yourself, if you have any uh, iota of romanticism in you, you have to respond. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I found it to be inspiring when I was younger. You know, it's just, um, I guess I was around 21, 22, and I found a few of his books at Barnes & Noble. And mm, What um, did you read first? 
I think the Antichrist actually. Oh my goodness! Yes, which of course is appealing to a, to a young person, <laughs> you know. And if, of course, I didn't learn until later that it really translates more into like the anti-Christian, right? It's not actually sure. Yes, referring yeah. to the biblical Antichrist, but uh, yeah, I don't know. There was there was something to it at that age, like the the kind of um, you know you got to in adolescence. There's kind of a, a force that takes over that that makes you wants so badly to conform and fit in and and when when that kind of dries up when you're a little older i guess you kind of need mm. some other inspiration yeah um, for sure for sure what uh let's see here just before so we was, get to the next confession also uh, you know i i grew up kind of in the 90s when there was kind of a pop culture resurgence of nietzsche you know there was fight mm. club there was marilyn manson there was uh, uh a couple other other items that that kind of touched on his philosophy. What, what did you think of all that stuff? Was that something you noticed I, at the time or? Yeah. I watched the movie fight club. I think it's a brilliant, uh, brilliant movie, mm-hmm. uh, but a lot of the pop culture manifestations of Nietzsche in the nineties, I would say I was largely oblivious to those. That was mm-hmm. my first decade out of graduate school. So I was right. Right. High academic mode, publishing and teaching sure. and, uh, and so forth. You weren't, but you weren't is, putting on uh, your Marilyn Manson makeup and going to concerts. Yeah, no, that was not where I was right at the <laughs> okay. uh, at the time. Yes, yeah, so right. I was a young professor making a, a name <laughs> for myself at my university and getting the publications out. But it is a testament to the power of Nietzsche that he has had huge impact on philosophers of almost all schools and stripes over the 20th century. Mm-hmm. Uh, huge impact on religion, on politics, and other manifestations. Certainly, the whole art world. Uh, you find Nietzsche everywhere. Sure. And uh, yeah, it is you know, to his credit that it does spill out into popular culture. He's, mm-hmm. he's accessible. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, a lot of a lot of heavy metal uh, Nietzsche references I've noticed. Do you think that's kind of um, overblown? Like you know, this idea that he's kind of the uh, the the, the war like kind of rebel uh, philosopher. You know, yeah. like it, I remember hearing the title "Philosophizing with a Hammer." And yeah. I, I, of course, didn't realize he was referring to a tuning hammer, hammer for a piano. There's, there almost seems to be like this glorification of violence that people yeah. take from it. Yeah, well, he, of course, is always choosing provocative metaphors. It's part of his brilliance as a stylist. You know, hmm. Twilight of the Idols, Beyond Good and Evil, Antichrist, right, and so on. And of course, uh, he's often choosing metaphors that are subject to multiple interpretations. Right. And he wants you, he wants you to work at it. You know, part of him, uh, a part of his style is to say, I'm not going to just lay this out as a treatise, you know, point one, point two. Uh, I am semi-poetic, semi-parabolic in my style. I want you to work at it. Mm-hmm. And uh, you know, the, yeah, the tuning fork metaphor is, uh, is, is, is exactly right, that he's, you're putting words that are going to operate on your soul and on your mind and how you respond right. is indicative, right? So you are like the piano strings and he's... Yeah, how it vibrates in your, in your soul. Yeah, that's right. Yes. And, you know, I've actually taken that particular um, metaphor into, you know, when I am writing music or um, writing, you know, whatever... I, I try to like have that, that, uh, feeling of like, does, do I just feel, does it feel right to me, you know, mm-hmm. on the inside? Does it just ring true? You know? Yes. Yeah, for sure. 
All right. So this next confession is from Ben Wyckoff, Hot Springs, Arkansas. He says, I'm not an expert, but I'm a bit of a nihilist. I think Thus Spoke Zarathustra is the most hand-handed attempt at satire I've ever read, but he makes some good points. I lean more towards the absurdist end of the nihilist spectrum. I think that's Sartre. I don't know enough about Nietzsche the man to have an opinion. I think his philosophy provided a good foil for his overly self-important contemporaries, but it also seems that he was less humble, less than humble himself. Ironic that. Mm. Well, there's a lot uh, packed into that comment. So uh, I think I'll just uh, initially confine myself to the first part, okay. uh, Nietzsche and nihilism. Uh, Nietzsche would see himself as a ultimately a critic of nihilism hmm. and as someone who is diagnosing nihilism because one of his important philosophical and cultural analysis is that what we call uh, Western civilization is a hybrid civilization that begins with Judaism and Christianity on the one hand and the Greco-Roman tradition on the other. So he's thinking in terms of millennia, but he is arguing that by the time we get to the 19th century, we are at a, a, at a cultural exhaustion point. Mm-hmm. That the the uh, the Judeo-Christian tradition has largely triumphed over the Greco-Roman tradition, and we have reached the end result of the Judeo-Christian tradition, mm-hmm. uh, so that we don't really believe in God anymore. Right. But at the same time, we're not really mature enough to really believe in science, <clears throat> and we don't have anything to replace it with. So. We're somewhat like adolescents who've been told a bunch of comforting stories when we were children. Right. But now we've grown up enough to realize that those stories probably aren't true. Mm-hmm. Uh, but we're also stripped away from all of the comfort that those stories offer us. So nihilism is a, is a natural reaction to that. You know, once your idols have been smashed, right. you, know, you, you look up to your mom and your dad and your teachers, but then you start to realize that they're not perfect. Mm-hmm. And maybe they have major flaws, and although there, there is no Santa Claus, there is no God, <laughs> there's not even an Easter bunny. So you oh, don't man. believe in anything, and it's easy then to to fall into despair, to thinking there are no answers to anything. Right. And then at the same time, you're still young. You know, you're an adolescent. You're not ready yourself to take on the world. So uh, I think Nietzsche would say that nihilism is a good diagnosis of where we are culturally, but at the same time, it's a danger for people who are not strong enough to uh, to take on the challenge of trying to transcend nihilism. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So and of course, Nietzsche uh, famously... What's ahead. that? I just I was saying, I want to pause there in case you wanted to jump in so I don't dominate the discussion. Oh, I just, I just wanted to remind everyone that Nietzsche famously said, uh, the Easter Bunny is dead. <laughs> yeah, there you go. Um, so as far as, you know, filling that void of nihilism from the Judeo-Christian tradition that was kind of dying around then and, um, filling it with, with the Ubermensch, what's, what's your take on all that? Is, is the Ubermensch a a real ideal that people can strive for? Did you really have something in mind or was it more of a a metaphor? Yeah, well, uh, I think Nietzsche thought we should strive to become Ubermenschen, uh, but I don't think he had one template in mind for what that would amount to. 
So I think in the Thus Spake Zarathustra, your confessional person, I'm sorry, the fellow from Hot Springs, Arkansas, I can't remember his name. Ben. Sorry for that. Uh, uh, he says he's not very impressed with this. Uh, Nietzsche himself did not uh, think of himself as uh, an ubermensch, mm -hmm. uh, merely as a herald or, or someone signaling that they, that they are coming. But what I think Nietzsche would say is negatively is uh, no one can tell you what the new set of values should be. So right. all kinds of religions have said, you know, here are the absolute universal truths and we lay them on you and you must believe them and follow. Mm. All of that's exploded. Some people in the modern world would say, uh, you know, we should just trust the scientists and do what the scientists tell us. Or the socialists want to... Uh, in a, in a non-religious form saying you should trust the state, the government will look after you. So you don't have to uh, do any of the hard lifting and hard thinking about figuring out what your values are. Mm. So Nietzsche's point is first, and this is what many of the existentialists find attractive in him is to say, uh, you know, if God is dead, then what we have to do as individuals is take on God-like responsibilities, that God was a legislator and there was no super God to tell God what the right values are, that we have to ourselves become creators of our own identities, creators of our own values, mm -hmm. and decide and legislate for ourselves what the meaning of our lives are, is going to be. Mm -hmm. uh, and um, it, does, it doesn't necessarily have to be religious or politic right. or artistic or in business. It can be anything the mm -hmm. point is that you have to be the one who legislates right. for it. Right. Yeah. Would you say that the whole kind of modern self-help movement is, you know, is kind of reflective of that? Is that um... not the whole of it? Because the the modern self-help movement uh, predates Nietzsche. Mm -hmm. uh, Samuel Smiles uh, published uh, in, I think, 1859, the first book in this genre. <laughs> and, and his name was Smiles? Samuel Smiles, yes. Wow. So he's a kind of a product of the Enlightenment that says, uh, you know, now that uh, we've broken the chains of feudalism, we've broken the chains of superstition, mm -hmm. we've created a new modern world where people are free agents in, in business, in the economy, politically, religiously, and so forth. We all have the responsibility for educating ourselves, deciding our own values, our own course in life. And so how do you do that? Well, uh, a practical self-help manual is uh, is a very useful thing. Mm -hmm. But he's proceeding mm -hmm. on a much more uh, enlightenment, realist, uh, entrepreneurial model. So I think uh, uh, there's a difference there be between that and Nietzsche because uh, you know, Nietzsche is going to be much more uh, subjectivistic in, in, uh, in saying, there really are no models. No one can tell you you're entirely on your own and so mm -hmm. forth. Right. So Nietzsche, I think, though, at the same time would say, you know, probably 99% of the population is not suited to uh, becoming ubermensch in any way, shape, or form. They don't have the strength of character. They're too lazy. They're pulled in conflicting directions. They're too conformist. So they're just going to follow the leader. But right. he does think there's one person in a hundred who has a shot at trying. You know, <laughs> artists, musicians, mm -hmm. maybe some great business leaders, political leaders, and so forth. The Napoleons and the Alexanders and the Julius Caesars in that particular walk of life. 
possibly great scientists, the people uh-huh. who are willing to uh, take no crap from anybody. We're not going to uh, worry about committee meetings, cut through the red tape, stomp on <laughs> others, bang a few fe- heads, a few heads together when necessary, <laughs> who, who are willing to say, this is my agenda. I'm going to impose it on the world. One in a hundred people uh, have what it takes to do that. Maybe one in a thousand of those will actually succeed in creating some great new vision or agenda. Uh-huh. And those will be the Ubermensch. Interesting. Who, who would you say of, you know, the, since Nietzsche's death, who, who do you think would, would qualify? Well, that's a very good question. I, uh, I can't speak for Nietzsche on this, but I think he would be open to saying any great artist mm-hmm. who has, in fact, created a new musical genre and made his or her mark on that. Interesting. Uh, so you know, perhaps Rachmaninoff or uh-huh. perhaps Maria Callas in, uh, in opera. Perhaps Herbert von Karajan as a, mm-hmm. as a conductor would be the kinds of people in uh, in music that Nietzsche would respond to, and he he thought musicians were uh, were uh, more than others the kinds of people who had that potential. He does not seem to have uh, much much uh, uh, respect for people who pursue commercial activities, but he might in hindsight, be impressed with some of the great entrepreneurs of the 20th century, Henry Ford, mm-hmm. Steve Jobs, perhaps Elon Musk. I think all of these would be would be candidates. Now, what would be interesting, this of course takes closer to, uh, to uh, the Nietzsche and the Nazis book that I, that I wrote. You know, what would he say about Adolf Hitler? What would he say about Joseph Stalin and Mao Zedong, hmm. even though they are uh, you know, from our liberal democratic republican perspective horrific individuals mm-hmm. you have to say they did succeed in having a vision having an agenda and succeeding by many measures of political success at sure. their agenda so mm-hmm. what Nietzsche would have to say about them worth arguing about right right well it's interesting um <clears throat> All right. This one is from Edward Shaw, who is from England. Uh, It says Nietzsche is a complex personality with a powerful philosophy. Can't say I agree with everything he said, because if you read everything he wrote from the beginning to end, you'll see that his thoughts and identity change quite a bit over time. Ultimately, I would say that his overall message is of living authentically, true to oneself, questioning preconceived ideas, uh, religion, obviously, and ultimately of embracing life and nature. Hmm. I'm uh, yeah, impressed with the range of your audience from, uh, from uh, I think, Maryland to Arkansas to England. Very, yeah, yeah. Uh, very good. Yeah, we're about to go uh, to Asia in the next one, too. Oh, excellent. Wow, that's impressive. <laughs> so I think, uh, yes, uh, this individual from England, that is the, the kind of the romantic reading of Nietzsche. And I think absolutely uh, uh, there's a lot in the text to support that, that reading mm-hmm. of Nietzsche. The thing I would uh, just... Uh, put out there for a deeper read of Nietzsche is the extent to which a phrase like be true to yourself, uh, whether the later Nietzsche sustains that, because there's a lot in Nietzsche that undercuts the idea that there is such a thing as a self. Hmm. And there are various points where he says quite explicitly, uh, what we call a self, there is no such thing, that maybe you can talk about competing selves, competing 
wills to power, uh, you know, maybe competing instincts that evolution has uh, uh, blended into what we might call you as an individual. But there is no unified self. There is no unified individual. Instead, you are just a competing battle zone of all of these underlying unconscious drives. Mm -hmm. So being true to that, what does that, what does that even mean? Right. Uh, another thing, of course, would be whether yourself, if you're talking about your conscious self and your conscious values, whether that is a thing that has any measure of authenticity or agency. There's lots, particularly in the later and mature Nietzsche, to suggest that there is no such thing as agency or authenticity. Hmm. Instead, there are just all of these forces that well up in some people more than others, and you are merely and your conscious self or your conscious individuality, uh, more of a mouthpiece for through which rather these unconscious forces are operating. Hmm. Interesting. Um, so do you, do you get the idea that he thinks that, uh, you know, Uber mentioned type people should be the type that are, that are going through a lot of pain and a lot of conflict and a lot of misery that are, it really takes like that type of stress in order to get something great. Or is that, a, do, is that a popular misreading? Yeah, no, I, do, I think that's right. You know, mm. so the, the religious formulation is you have to go through hell in order to get through heaven. There is a lot of that kind of romantic struggle and conflict in Nietzsche. Right. That it is right. uh, through, you know, exploitation, self-denial, struggle, conflict with yourself and with others, that there is no easy, there is no easy path. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, a couple of things to say here. One is, you know, there's this, this very striking phrase at the end of, uh, or toward the end of The Will to Power, which was not published in Nietzsche's lifetime, but uh, this phrase that sticks with me, and I think I might be doing a podcast on it sometime later this year, where he says, of the Ubermenschen whom he is projecting as arising at some point in the future, that they will be Caesars with the soul of Christ. Hmm. Caesars with the soul of Christ. And uh, just a, a quick reading of this, that Caesars, of course, comes out of the Roman tradition. And what you find in Rome, the greatest kind of military Republican empire uh, ever, uh, that might be an overstatement, but nonetheless, one that was that in Nietzsche's estimation, and that what it took for the Romans to become great was, of course, a whole lot of conflict, the development of a civic Republican virtue mm -hmm. that was then expressed in a martial virtue that enabled them to go out and conquer most of the known world, right. and then to produce someone like Julius Caesar. So on Nietzsche's reading, in Julius Caesar, you find the complete Greco-Roman tradition reaching a maturity. The, with the, the self-discipline, the strength of mind, the iron character, and the willingness to rise up and impose his agenda on all of Rome and, by extension, all of the Roman Empire. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So that Caesar spirit is our inheritance from Rome. But at the same time, Nietzsche recognizes for all of his disagreements and all of his disgust at the Judeo-Christian tradition, he does call it a slave morality, that it's uh, uh, riven through with envy and resentment and so forth. Uh, he does say that through all of that, 
what the Judeo-Christian tradition has done is operate internally mm -hmm. on people's souls with all of the self-denial, mm -hmm. the dealing with guilt and envy and fear that there has been an entire spiritual tradition of self-denial that did culminate in someone like Jesus Christ with his willingness to have a strength of character, to be able to transcend his say, natural human desires to, uh, to smack your enemies around, rather to turn the other cheek and to forgive them, mm -hmm. rather than a harsh vengeance or justice against your enemies to forgive them. And Nietzsche does recognize that there's an enormous strength of spiritual character to be able to do that. Right. So if you then take the spirit of Julius Caesar and the spirit of Jesus Christ and say all of that is captured in the modern Western civilization, but we're still striving and trying and blending and so forth, the conflict is still going out of that, that one possibility for the higher type of human being to come will be that individual who somehow blends both of them, mm -hmm. Caesar's with the spirit of Jesus Christ. Now, the exact form that will take, uh, Nietzsche says, I don't know what that will be, but I think that's where Western civilization is going. Hmm. Interesting. I got to say, that's that's one thing that I've always kind of questioned with, with him. Um, you know, it, it almost kind of feels like a version of like the slave mentality of, you know, how he kind of discusses how um, when people are weak, they, they try to make that weakness a virtue and other people's strength a vice. Yes. Um, and it almost, to me, seems like th this idea that you have to, to strive and, and be miserable in order to produce anything, it almost seems like the same kind of thing, you know, almost like an excuse, mm. kind of a, because uh, I, I don't know, I just don't get why it's necessary for, for growth, per se. Uh, so you're asking for uh, what the criticism would be for uh, of Nietzsche's kind of valorization of suffering and yeah. sacrifice uh, as the necessary. Yeah. Mm. Well, that's true. Um, I think it's, you know, it's one thing to say, you know, suppose you want to be a great athlete. Well, you know you're going to sweat and fall down and scrape your knee and sprain your ankle. And uh, you do have to deny yourself. You can't. Mm -hmm. drink as much alcohol as you would like and party with your friends as much. So there's a certain amount of self-denial in order to achieve the greater end. Right. And there right. are psychological versions of that. If you're going sure. to be a brilliant uh, a composer or a brilliant scientist or whatever, you're going to have to you know, hurt your mind and deal with a lot of confusion and, and dead ends and frustrations and so on. Mm -hmm. So you can't take the easy road. But you're right that there is a whole kind of a hyper-romantic tradition. It seems almost to valorize suffering for its own sake. Right, right, exactly. And, uh, and, and there is a, um, I don't know, a kind of masochism that sometimes can be built into that. Oh, uh, you're so good with words, Stephen. You just you put things so well. well. I wish I had that. Well, we're just thinking out loud right now, so hopefully this will be grist for the mill. Absolutely. Um. Okay, so we have one more confession. Now, this one is a little less Nietzsche-centric. Uh, I, th I think this woman is is just a, a fan of your writings and has more of a uh, more of a specific question about some of the things you talk about. This is from Jen Norris from Bangkok, Thailand. Nice. Um, I believe she's she, she's definitely 
from the States, but that's where she is right now. Okay. Living the dream out in Bangkok, Thailand. Yep. She's quarantined there. there. Nice. She says she's, she loves it. All right. She says, okay. He described collectivism. And I, I think she's referring to you, not Nietzsche here. Uh, he described collectivism, authoritarianism, rejection of capitalism, and advocacy of socialism as tenets of Nazism. This closely parallels the development of communist China, but until recent years, they've become noticeably, noticeably more expansive. Given the similarities, historic and present, uh, do you think a similar trajectory is desired or would take place with other world authoritarian powers today like China? Uh, that's a nicely complex geopolitical question. Uh, I think the answer is yes. There is a collectivism that has taken uh, kind of a, a, what we now think of as a classic communist socialist form where economic issues are primary and there the big enemy is capitalism. Uh, capitalism being economically individualistic, everybody chooses their own career, does deals with whomever they want, makes a million dollars or goes bankrupt. So you're more on your own under capitalism where socialism slash communism, you have government management of the economy and all of the other aspects of society, family, religion, and so forth are built around fundamentally economic concerns. Mm -hmm. uh, but that's not the only form of collectivism that has been prominent. There are uh, forms of collectivism that take ethnicity or nation to be primary and the national socialists and the fascists are representative of this and they will say yeah the economy matters but it's ethnicity it's culture it's family it's your racial identity it's all of these things that are the more important collective unit and the economy just is a means to those ends as well. Mm -hmm. So in the case of China, I'm not at all an expert on contemporary China, but yes, the original Chinese revolution under Mao was much more orthodox communist, uh, taking its inspiration from, uh, from the Soviet Union and, and classical Marxism, but it has evolved. It became very authoritarian slash totalitarian and uh, it had you know, massive failures on, of, of human rights and in terms of economic success. So the Communist Party in China did loosen things up starting in the 1990s right. and then after the, after the death of, of Mao. And so they did uh, experiment with some economic liberalism, allowing some more enterprise zones within, obviously China is a large country, so experimenting with some economic zones opening the nation up to some amount of foreign capital, foreign expertise, and so on. And to the extent that China has experimented with some measure of economic liberalization, it's been, become uh, wealthy right, to, to that yeah. extent. It also has shifted away significantly from uh, the classic Marxist view that race and ethnicity do not matter. It's not workers of the world unite and, and everywhere around the world all of the workers have the same economic interests, it has shifted significantly toward a kind of ethnocentrism and nationalism. Uh -huh. It's the, the Chinese nation that is the collective that matters, not the workers of the world. Right. And uh, within China's geographical boundaries, there are dozens and dozens of major ethnic groups and there are ethnic rivalries and some ethnicities are much superior within China to 
others. Hmm. So there is, a, a, and I believe this is the direction the question was pointing, that China is not necessarily a pure communist society anymore. It is an economically authoritarian society that allows a certain amount of economic liberalism, but keeps the reins on that very tightly, but is becoming a kind of nationalistic socialism with strong ethnic elements dominating. Mm -hmm. Okay. Uh, is that the type of thing you touch on in uh, liberalism pro and con? No, liberalism pro and con is a is a primer. I there am taking the, the the best philosophers, economists, and political theorists who are either strongly in favor of liberalism or strongly opposed to liberalism, and pitting their arguments against each other. Okay. Awesome. So it doesn't talk about contemporary Russia per se, or right. contemporary China, or the contemporary U.S. situation either. All right. And once again, before we go, where can we find that book? The Liberalism Pro and Con book is available at Amazon uh, and uh, in print form. And uh, uh, I think direct from the publisher as well and their distributors. But uh, please also keep an eye out for the ebook and the audio book, which should be forthcoming later in the year. All right. Sounds great. Uh, now, Stephen, you don't seem like a big social media guy. Are, are you on uh, any of the Instagram or Twitter or anything? Well, I do have Twitter and stuff that I post at my website automatically goes to Twitter. I spend a little more time at Facebook. All right. And I'm trying to right now actually get my Facebook uh, set up as a more professional page. Okay. But yes, I am one of those uh, academics who's slowly, slowly working his way out into the public intellectual world. Right. <laughs> All right. Sounds great. Well, thank you so much, Stephen. Um, this was a lot of fun. And um, yeah, thanks for the invitation. Great questions. Awesome. And I will uh, let you know when this comes out. Thank you so much. And once Good. again, the book is called Liberalism Pro and Con. You can find that on Amazon. And thanks, everybody, for listening to another episode of The Confessional. All right. That was great. Good. All right. Thanks, Michael. Thank you so much. I was, I got to admit, I was a little intimidated. You're just, the way you talk is just so you uh, know, well. eloquent that I, I feel like a little, <laughs> you know, the well. way I talk isn't quite as... Uh, no, you, uh, you, you come across very clear. You have a great radio voice yourself, so you have good questions. Yeah, thanks a lot for hosting me and uh, yeah, all of this for your projects. All right, thank you. I'll let you know when this is out. Great. Thanks, Michael. Bye for now. Bye.